Did you know you can support your local independent bookstore and me in my efforts to promote books that feature women in aviation by shopping for your next aviatrix read on the Literary Aviatrix website? I built the website to serve as a central source to search and find books featuring women in aviation, and it was important to me to offer you the opportunity to buy from independent sellers. If the book you're interested in is available on bookshop.org, you'll find a link to purchase through my affiliate account on my website, which means I'll receive a small portion of the sale to support the content you love. Blue skies and happy reading. Literary Aviatrix. Welcome to the Aviatrix Book Review, where I review and discuss books featuring women in aviation. Check out the Aviatrix Book Review website, where you'll find hundreds of books featuring all kinds of aviation in every genre for all ages. Hello, welcome to the Aviatrix Book Review. I'm Liz Booker. My guest today is a former Air Force and recently retired airline pilot, and she is the author of the book From Plane to Plane, My Mennonite Childhood, A National Scandal, and an Unconventional Sword of Freedom, which will be available on February 23rd. You can find her on her author page on Facebook, which I will link in the description. Patty Bear, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I am so excited to talk to you, and I find your story so fascinating. Can you give us a synopsis of the book? Sure. So it's a memoir, and it takes place over the course of 10 years from the time I was uh, 8 to 18. So I was born into this uh, 400-year-old sect among the plain people of Pennsylvania, which is the Amish and the Old Order Mennonites. And so in these kind of cultures, women are raised to be silent, submissive, obedient, and basically to know a woman's place in a man's world. And that's the only world I knew. It's the one that I wanted to uh, become a part of uh, more than anything. But when I was eight years old, my father got excommunicated and shunned. And this set off a, about a decade-long saga of uh, court cases and national publicity and then hidden violence. And I had grown up on this large potato farm. And we ended up, my mother and uh, six of us children ended up fleeing and kind of living on the run for about 10 years. But out of this whole upheaval, what happened is everything that I had been taught, I began to question. I began to question the background. Part of that is we couldn't vote. We didn't have, weren't allowed to have television or watch movies or makeup or anything worldly. You couldn't press charges. So if someone um, robbed your house, you couldn't really do anything about it couldn't join the military, not women, certainly not women, but not men either. And you couldn't have become a pilot because it was part of the worldly world. It was considered that you would become corrupted. That was, that was the fear. But out of all of these things that happened, 
it sort of catapulted me out of that world and I began to experience new things and and question the things that I had been taught. And that led to an entirely different life as a uh, as a military pilot eventually and an airline pilot. You were introduced to aviation when you were a teenager, is that right? That's correct. So my older brother was always a very forward-thinking person. And he was one of these people who, when he was doing something, uh, he always thought somebody else should be doing it. And and I had a job from the time I was in um, fifth grade and we all had we all had jobs, so we had our own money. And my brother is like, oh, you should come take flying lessons because he was taking them. And I was like, I don't want to take flying lessons. I barely have any money as it is. And it wasn't really something that interested me. But um, he was very persuasive. And I was like, okay, okay, I'll go. And I took a first lesson and it wasn't like I loved it. You know, I was, I didn't even have my driver's license yet. So I was, I was kind of, I was kind of scared. I was, I was afraid I might crash and I got air sick and I just kind of kept taking them. I decided I would, I decided I would go to solo, which was like 10 hours. And then I would quit and spend my money on something more useful, but I didn't, I ended up getting my um, private pilot's license just uh, uh, as I graduated from high school. And then when you graduated, you went to the Air Force Academy? Yeah. So, um, and that was, that was part of leaving this other world. I had determined that because of the circumstances that I grew up in with the violence, I watched my mother's life and I was like, I do not want that life. Like I want to be financially independent. And, um, but I had no idea how I was going to do that. And higher education in these cultures is discouraged as well, because you might get educated away from the truth is the way they describe it. And my father was adamantly, he had trained us from a very early age that we shouldn't go to college. But again, my older brother, you know, he heard me talking about how I wanted to make my own money. And I thought that I needed to go to college to do that. And so he said to me, he said, well, he said, you need to take four years of math and science and three years of a language, and you should take the hardest classes you can take. Well, the AP classes and honors classes. And so I was like, okay, he must know what he's talking about. And so I just followed his instructions to the T and, and I got recruited. I, I, I won this race. I, you know, I talk about it in the book in, in sort of a, in sort of a funny way. I ran this um, race in eighth grade and got recruited into cross country, varsity cross country. And which that was different for our background too, participating in sports or clubs or anything like that. So, so I, I, I don't have any way of paying for college. I'm like, well, maybe I'll get a, a scholarship, you know, a running scholarship. You know, at, at some point I, I realized I wasn't good enough to get a, a scholarship to pay for college. And I had no idea how I was going to do this. And then this cadet comes to our school and there was an announcement that a cadet from the Air Force Academy was going to talk in the guidance counselor's office. And I didn't even know what that was. Like from our background, I was like, uh, well, that sounds like it might have something to do with flying. So I went in, I was like, well, I didn't have anything better to do in, in study hall the next period. And it just completely changed the trajectory of my life. So, so this brother of yours, what was the age difference? How many siblings did you have? So there's six children. I had two older brothers. He was my oldest brother and three younger sisters. And he was, we were all, most of us are about a year or a year and a half apart. So he was three years older than me. 
It sounds like he provided you with a lot of leadership and guidance. He really did. He was a mentor and he kind of liked that. He would tutor us uh, in classes that we found difficult. So yeah, it made, it made a huge difference and I dedicated the book to him. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. really cool. I have a question. So um, I listened to your interview and for everybody else who wants to go way deeper with Patty uh, about her story, her life story and kind of the things that she's doing now, she did a great interview with the Onward podcast with Emily Harmon. And I'll put a link in the description to that. I really enjoyed getting to know you through that interview. Um, but I don't think that you covered this. I'm interested to know how being you were on sort of the first wave or this well you were you were still the first wave of women to go to a military academy um, you weren't the first year but the first wave and i'm really interested to know how that culture compared i mean did you see any parallels in the male dominated culture of a military academy of aviation military aviation to your childhood yeah, that's a great question. And, and I actually talk about that a little bit in the book, you know, at the end. So, and I got to the Air Force Academy just as the third class of women, third class that included women was graduating. So it was still pretty, pretty early in the cycle. So coming from that background, I go to the Academy and I worked so hard to get into the Academy. Like I, I talked about nothing else for a year and a half of my my brothers and sisters were all just kind of tired of it. They would like roll their eyes like, oh God, can't she talk about anything else? So I was so over the moon when I got in and I did couldn't afford to go out and visit. So I'd never been there. And I go out and I kind of, my so my mother wore these long dark dresses and a black bonnet and a white cap. And everywhere we went, she stood out. You know, I know one time when we went to school, some little kid yelled, look, there's a pilgrim. So, and this was from having been in the national news, this was a very searing experience. So naively, I thought when I went to the academy that that I wouldn't stand out at all. Like I was going to be anonymous, right? So you look at it now, you're like, well, you're only 10%. Of course, you're going to stand out. But I didn't, it never occurred to me. So it was a huge culture shock when I got out there to face the hostility. And so there there were a lot of parallels. There was that... um, you know, that you didn't belong there, that I remember some guy telling me that we women were just there to get a husband. And I was like, what, you know, they're just such easier ways to get a husband, you know? Yeah, there were a lot of parallels and, um, you know, you're just kind of confronting that entrenched um, mentality. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for breaking the way for the rest of us. We appreciate it. We're still working on things. (laughs) We we are indeed. It's kind of amazing to me, you know, 40 years later that, um, you know, we've made progress, but it's been glacial in my estimation. Absolutely. I agree. So you decided to write a book. When when did you come to that decision and and what were you trying to accomplish by writing this? So... um, I had decided that I wanted to write this book a long time ago, and I really don't. It, it's, it was decades ago, but it was just a question of when the timing was right. And what did I want to accomplish with it? 
there were two main things. Um, one, I wanted to, it was an accountability project. So, you know, readers will see in, in the book, there was this, this national story that was um, very searing where we, my mother and, and even us children were vilified in the national press. And it was very, it felt very unjust. And so I always wanted to set the record straight. Um, a is just as a matter of justice and B, you know, for the next generation. And I, and I think that's not something that's important to do. The second reason was I wanted to show this path that, you know, it's kind of a path of magic and mystery. And it, but it doesn't always look sparkly, you know, and it's this idea that sometimes trauma can be a liberating path. Because one of the things I was always aware of is that without the, without what happened as a child and without the severity of it and the length of it, I would have joined. I would have had my mother's life. I've always known that. And not only would I have had her life, but I would have, you know, my, my desire to follow the rules or to excel, to achieve, I would have been one of those women that are enforcers of these kind of cultures, you know, the, the Aunt Lydia's or the Serena Joy's in The Handmaid's Tale. And it's not something I'm proud of, but it's like, that's what I would have been, you know? So that was the other part of it to show how this path, how sometimes the things that happen in life lead us out and, um, and toward freedom, even though they're not, not that much fun to go through. Wow. You know, I didn't grow up anything close to the culture that you grew up in. Is there anything from that experience? And I hope maybe you talk about it in the book, but like looking back, are there any redeeming qualities from that culture? Because from the outside looking in, it just looks like complete oppression. Do you look back with any light on you know, the culture or how do you feel about it? So this is a culture, you know, it's, it's interesting that that's your perspective because so many people idealize this culture and because it has a very um, bucolic look. And I write about that in the first pages, you know, it, it is a, some parts of it are a very bucolic uh, existence. There's a very much a rhythm. You're, you're very grounded to the land, nature, farming, that, that sort of thing, um, in the seasons. And so it, I, I think that, uh, you know, is there anything redeeming about it? I think that on the, you know, it's like, um, it's kind of like a math problem. Is that on the whole, is it redeeming? And for me to, to a press half the population, that doesn't add up. And you can have these other things. You can have the bucolic aspects. You can have the simplicity without that. So that's kind of where I come out with that. Wow. Do you maintain any connections to that community at all? Yeah, it, that community is interesting. So if you join it and you choose to leave or you get kicked out, you get excommunicated and shunned, which is what happened to my father. My mother eventually left, and so the same thing happened to her, although it bothered her a lot less than it bothered him. And so I have uh, all of my relatives are in that community, which is what makes the shunning part of it so difficult for people. And that didn't happen to us because we didn't officially join it, didn't happen to us children. 
So you maintain these contacts with your relatives, but it's like they live in one world and you live in another, if that makes sense. So I mean, it makes sense just from like leaving your childhood community for those people who stayed and and never move out or experience anything different. So I would think that a culture like this, that's so insular, it would be even more, more pronounced. It is more pronounced. That's a, that's a good way of putting it and no hard feelings, but you just kind of live in two different worlds and, you know, so loose contact. You recently retired from the airlines. We didn't talk about that part of your career. Tell us a little bit about that transition from the Air Force, the airlines, and and your transition to retirement. So the transition from the Air Force to the airlines, um, I got out just after the first Gulf War. And so the airlines were starting to hire and then they shut down. So nobody was hiring for about a year. So that was the period I was like, oh my gosh, am I ever going to get hired? Which I think everybody does. Every, every pilot who's pursuing, you know, the airlines feels that way. And then I got hired and, um, I had a long career there and, um, 28 years. And then when COVID came up, there was opportunity to take an early out. And I did what I've always done in my life, which is I just kind of pay attention at this intuitive level. And, it was like, it just felt like the right time to leave. Um, so it's been a little bit of an adjustment because I loved being a triple seven captain. I liked being a leader. I liked, you know, physically flying, but it just felt like, just felt like it was time. And so, um, and did you have the book already written, uh, before you retired and it was, you were planning to put it out already? Yeah. So I finished the book. I finished my part of writing it last spring. And then I had it, I had it professionally edited and had my, my mom check over, make sure the facts were correct and things like that. And yeah, so it was going through this process and was going to be coming out anyway. Yeah. And it comes out on February 23rd. Is that right? It does indeed. Very excited about that. Would you mind sharing a passage with us so that we can get a feel for the book? Um, Sure. I'd never wanted to leave that bucolic life of bare feet on a country dirt road, the chorus of birds in the meadow, or swinging on a rope above the creek and jumping off at the highest moment in exaltation. I'd never dreamed of being anywhere but there. I certainly never imagined being here in this place for this job. And yet sometimes I still shudder thinking how narrowly I escaped that life. What might have been if it hadn't been for my father? For there is no logical route from that time and place to this moment and this place. Sometimes, though, like now, I wonder if I'm delusional. Did I merely imagine the events that catapulted me out of one world and into another? Self-doubt, my one constant, had migrated with me between those two worlds. Just because I had attained this lofty position didn't mean the ghosts of the past had gone away. I look once again at the instrument panel and then back to the whiteness passing far below at a barely discernible 600 miles an hour, inside, outside. What is the truth? Did I imagine all those long ago events? Wow. Well, I definitely want to keep reading now. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Is this your only book or do you have other, other projects in mind? This is my second book. 
And so four years ago, I wrote a book, I co-wrote a book with um, a woman who was just a genius with children. She was an educator. So I had, I had sort of watched her for years and really wanted to know what her secret was and never kind of had the courage to ask her until she retired. And then I was like, I just couldn't get it out of my mind. I was like, somebody should write about what she did. And so I asked her, you know, if, if she would agree to be interviewed, that I would try to write about her, uh, what she did and how she did it. And so that's what I did. I sat down and I wrote it and it was the book that I wished I'd had as a young parent. And actually my, my kids were 15 and 17, I think when I finished it and, um, it made me a better parent. You know, I still think about the things in it today, uh, understanding her, her philosophy. Yeah, I, I, I haven't read it, but it sounds like something that I wish I had had when my children were young, too. We don't get any training. Oh, no. You know, well, we get the training that our parents give us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And are you writing now? I am writing now. So I, you know, in the back of this book, I wrote that my next um, book is Adventures of the Soul. And so I write about this, this journey of kind of this path of mystery and magic of the way life unfolds and how to do that at a conscious level, like how to collaborate with your intuition, like your inner voice, the, the inspirations, uh, synchronicities, um, just how to kind of pay attention and then practically apply it. So that's one of the things that I'm working on. And then I have this other book that's actually working its way through me and I think it might be first. So, <laughs> you know, we'll see. <laughs> I know that's how inspiration comes. They just won't leave you alone. These, exactly. these brain children, they, exactly. they sit in the corner banging on their high chairs, demanding attention. I have two of them right now that are doing that to me. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's lovely. And sometimes it's like, ah, oh, you know, I know. I, I have know. other things I want to do. I know. I mentioned to you the other day that I, in an interview that I just did with Lauren Kessler, who was the author of the Happy Bottom Writing Club, who is also a prolific writer, um, not an, an aviator at all. She's a writer and a professor of writing by trade. And oh, she's okay. written a book, The Right Path. In, in our writing conversation, we got into a little deeper detail on a portion of her book where she talks about memoir. And the fact that it's not nonfiction, it's not fiction. I think we got to the point where memoir is memory, but not necessarily factual memory. It's emotional memory, like how you personally experienced events. Somebody could tell the same story of that same time or same event and see it from a completely different perspective. But you wrote a memoir in the context of someone who has a tremendous amount of, of public record around your memory. And so you are, make this sort of unique situation. Can, tell me about how and whether you incorporated that public record in, in the writing of this book. I did. It's a, uh, actually a huge part of the book, and I did it for a very specific reason, and that is the story that was told at a public level, there was a great deal of gaslighting. Enough so that there were stories that my father told that I didn't understand. I didn't understand them until I began to do the research. For people who don't know it, gaslighting is essentially, it, it is twisting the truth. It is, um, it's like up is down, down is up. And for my father, 
uh, what we noticed as, as children is that he would begin to say something and he would kind of twist something, right? And then he said it so often that he began to believe it. And at the point where he believed it, the more he believed it, the more certain, more certainty he said it, and then the more charismatic he became. So, and this was just, you know, like I said, this was a huge story, national news, Canadian television and, and newspapers. So one of the things that I wanted to do in the book was to show how abusers operate. And I don't say that to dehumanize my father. It is about a particular behavior pattern that I'm talking about. But I wanted to show how this universal standard operating procedure, because it is a standard operating procedure around the world. I wanted to show what it looks like for people so they can see how this gets constructed, how people come to believe this. And so the public record was very important to lay out a timeline of what we were experiencing versus what he was saying. And it was hugely helpful. And, and because I have to remember a lot of this went on while I was a child. And so, um, you know, you believe what your parents say. And I was like, and my father was always very big about honesty. And so it was very confusing. It was like, well, this isn't what we're experiencing. And, you know, there's this difference between the public record and the private record. And so I really wanted to write about that. Do you think your father suffered from mental illness? So, you know, what I say, because he was very sensitive to, he has always been very sensitive to um, that charge that he is mentally ill. What I would say is that he suffers from multiple unhealed traumas that predated the shunning. And the other thing is, is that, you know, when it, I think that it's easy to, classify, you know, uh, how do I say this? Um, it's easy to put him in a compartment as an individual who is mentally, emotionally disturbed, but it takes it out of the culture that he grew up that promoted these ideas uh, about women, you know, as uh, his wife and his children were essentially property. And that's what he was fighting about. And so it destroyed his life. It severely impacted ours. So he's a product of his environment. And part of that environment was um, trauma, in my opinion, for him. Well, thank you, Patty. I'm so grateful to know you. I'm so grateful for your story. I can't wait to read the book. And I can't wait to talk to you more uh, in the writer's group. It's, it's awesome. Oh, and likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Patty's book is one of over 500 books featuring women in aviation that you'll be able to find on the Aviatrix book review website, which launches in March. Please be sure to check it out. Blue skies, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Please like, subscribe, and turn on notifications. Book reviews help sell books. Be sure to review the books you read at the Aviatrix book review website and wherever you buy your books. Yeah.